There's a podcast I think our listeners would want to know about. It's called Seen on Radio. The show has received much acclaim for its deep and engaging dives into the history and the very structure of American society. How can we see society more clearly so we can be more effective in changing it? Seen on Radio's two recent documentary series, Seeing White and Men, have explored racism and sexism in eye-opening ways. Check out Seen on Radio. That's S-C-E-N-E on Radio from the Center for Documentary Studies and PRX. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. How can we turn everyday citizens into engaged constituents? That's the question for a guest on Future Hindsight today, Brad Fitch. He's the president and CEO of the Congressional Management Foundation and is the author of The Citizen's Handbook to Influencing Elected Officials. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. So what exactly does the Congressional Management Foundation, or CMF, do? Well, we're a unique nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. We don't lobby Congress. We've been in existence for 41 years. And we have basically two missions. Part of it is to try to help, frankly, Congress operate on an individual office level better. So we're like the small business consultants for Congress. We also offer institutional advice on how to improve operational aspects. So we're not as much addressing the gridlock issues as more of the operational challenges. And we're also the leading experts on citizen advocacy. So citizen advocates who want to influence legislative outcomes or have their voices heard, we train citizens on how to have better relationships, understanding, and communications with elected officials. That's great. In fact, I've read both your Citizen's Handbook and CMF's 2017 report called Citizen-Centric Advocacy, the Untapped Power of Constituent Engagement. They're both excellent and informative reads and should be required reading for anyone who is interested in communicating with Congress. In both of those publications, you make an eloquent case for how well the government is actually working and how constituent engagement can make it even better. One of my favorite parts is that you start the introduction with the First Amendment and focus on the connection between citizens and their government representatives. I was most surprised in this report by the statistic that direct interaction with a lawmaker has the most influence. You cite that if your lawmaker has not yet arrived at a firm decision on an issue, an in-person visit from a constituent has a 94% efficacy rate as an advocacy strategy. That's right. That's a totally shocking number. How can we meet with our elected representative? I, it never occurred to me to do that. Well, first, we have to unpack that a little bit. Most of what people are reading or seeing on TV are more controversial issues like immigration or abortion or health care. While those are very important issues and I'm not in any way diminishing them, that's not the majority of what Congress is spending its time on. We just completed an analysis of Senate votes from 2018. And if you look at the total number of votes in 2018, that represented about 7 to 8% of the votes in the United States Senate. Those issues that I like to call that are electoral or reputational, meaning it affects an electoral outcome of a legislator or it affects their long-term reputation. Most of what people advocate on behalf of before Congress don't fall into that category because most advocates are having their advocacy facilitated by associations or nonprofits that they join. You may call them special interests. I call them farmers 
or teachers or people that use food banks, because those are the people that are primarily interacting with members of Congress. Let's say you've decided to support and do walks for Alzheimer's Association. Well, they're going to encourage you to build relationships with your local members of Congress, maybe set up meetings in the district or state, maybe invite them to an Alzheimer's walk. That's going to educate the lawmaker as to how Alzheimer's may affect their community or their family or a broader constituency. That's what most of citizen advocacy is in America. You talk about how we need to be properly prepared for these meetings with our elected officials. What are the key points that we need to have ready? The first is probably to know a little bit about your issue. Now, when I say know about your issue, I'm not saying become a lobbyist and understand the, you know, the talking points that they're going to put together in a major report. What our research shows is that members of Congress, when they interact with constituents, primarily want to know one of two things. One, they'd like to hear a personal story on how a bill or issue may affect you. No lobbyist can do that. No lobbyist can attach an issue to a face. And that's what constituent advocacy can do. Second, they'd like to hear a little bit about the local impact. I remember when I was working as a legislative director for a lawmaker who was trying to decide whether or not to co-sponsor a piece of legislation that would overturn some regulation that EPA put out that had to do with dry cleaners. And basically, the EPA had put out a regulation that required dry cleaners to use a more expensive chemical but it was better for the environment. And my boss was torn on this. And we had a dry cleaner write in and say, I have three dry cleaning established in your district. I employ 12 people. If this regulation is allowed to put forward, I'm going to have to lay one of those people off. That's a very powerful statement to an elected official because that shows them the direct impact that their decisions have on their local community. It's really interesting that, in fact, the elected official, the representative, is reading this mail and is connecting the dots. Because, like you said, in the media, we don't have this impression. We have this impression that we are totally powerless and nobody listens to us and nobody cares. What is the false narrative, you would say, about the relationship between elected representatives and their constituents? Well, many people obviously are guided by mainstream media. And I know mainstream media tries to do a good job, but they just focus on the negative. No newspaper writer ever won a Pulitzer Prize by reporting Congress did their job this week. So that's part of the challenge. The other challenge is Hollywood, to be honest with you. I have to point out House of Cards was not a documentary. You know, they got some of the furnishings in the majority leader right. After that, it's pure fiction. Another part of the false narrative is members of Congress as portrayed are very evil or self-interested people. And I got to tell you, I've been working with the Congress for 32 years as a reporter, as a consultant, as a staffer, now as an advisor. I've been in the room for literally thousands of decisions. And most members of Congress are really decent people, and they really are trying to do the best job they can for their constituents. Now, does the American public occasionally send to Capitol Hill a CAD criminal? Yes, they do. Unfortunately, that, that, that does happen. But by and large, most of the members you're going to interact with are really trying to be good public servants. That doesn't mean the system isn't broken. And I'm not trying to be Pollyanna-ish or naive. I totally see the challenges and having been here for three decades, what has happened. I'm simply saying that changing out the individuals and replacing them, throwing the rascals out, isn't the solution. We've done that a couple of times in the last two decades. It hasn't worked. That's not what's causing the gridlock and challenges. And that individual citizen advocacy is going to work out and it's going to usually at least get the member to listen. They may not vote the way every citizen wants them to vote. That's not how our democracy is set up. But they do listen to their constituents, especially those people that are affected by the decisions that they make. What are the most common failures in the meetings 
that you could be having with your elected official. So let's say you're unprepared. What happens? Well, we actually did a survey of congressional staff and asked them what they see often happening in meetings. And basically, we came up with a list of do's and don'ts. Um, The first don't is don't be rude. Uh, There was a guy who went to a town hall meeting in Wisconsin last year, and he was carrying a handmade sign. And the sign said, I didn't come here to listen to you. I came here to yell. Okay. That might felt good, but you're not influencing the elected official. So the first thing is to realize that there's a difference between a protest and a meeting. Protest has a very valuable and important part in American history, but so do meetings and conversations and democratic dialogue. First, enter into the dialogue with an open mind and the right spirit. Second, you know, do a little preparation, and that can be maybe even doing a little research on the member of Congress. We coach people to see is there a connection to your issue that might be either connected to the legislator or your family or the legislator's family, and, and just be prepared to talk about it in personal and local terms. That's what we find most groups don't do when we survey congressional staff. What percentage of uh, meetings include the constituent telling a personal story? You know, maybe one in five. So that really differentiates the citizen advocates if they're able to connect an issue to a person in the district or state. Can you tell us a little bit more about the training that you do to be an effective advocate? I was really impressed by the work you did with the Feeding America Advocacy Academy, and specifically that you took a survey of the people who took the course before and after. Can you tell us a little bit more about this program? So we worked with program officers all around the country who did both an online and offline in-person training program. And it was about a total of 40 hours of training over four months. And it included things like how to use social media, how to conduct events in the district or state that lawmakers would come to, um, how to have meetings with lawmakers, how to do everything from writing a letter to the editor to follow-up emails to the legislative staff. And then they came to Washington and engaged in an all-day training session in their final session. And we actually engaged in role-playing. If you watch a lecture, you'll retain 5% of the content. If you practice the lecture, you'll retain 75% of the content. So we force our advocacy academies participants to actually practice their pitch and what they're going to say. Or in the Feeding America case, we had actual congressional staffers who agreed to to train them and pretend you know, to be Democrats, Republicans, senior, junior staffers. And they had to roll with the punches and do the best they could. And then we let them loose on Capitol Hill the next day to try to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Amazing. I have a question about something you mentioned earlier, and that's protest. What's the value of protest? In what way is protest effective? Well, I, I'm i just giving you my opinion here. This is not research that we've done, but I, I have been observing this, especially in the last um, two years. We actually uh, looked and documented all of the in-person town hall meetings in the first eight months of 2017. And as you recall, there was a lot of protest at these town hall meetings. And unfortunately, they are discouraged members from having them. So I would say the value of protesting at town hall meetings is negative. All you're doing is pushing the member underground because they're not going to have town hall meetings anymore. If you want to protest, do it politely, do it in a way that's going to get the lawmaker's attention, maybe go to their office. Do not protest at their home. It's going to discourage good people from going into public office. There's no good that can come of it. And it certainly doesn't influence elected officials. It has the opposite effect. I think another thing that gets people's attention is we'll talk about virtual protests. That can be responding with authentic social media 
in their Facebook and Twitter feeds. So that's another not in-person protest, but a virtual protest. And if done the right way, it can be very effective. Hmm. Okay. So what is the most effective social media strategy that you have seen in the last, let's say, two years that you've been surprised by? Well, the best example that happened was about six years ago, and it was during the Stop Online Privacy Act debate, the SOPA-PIPA debate of 2011-2012, and that actually successfully killed legislation. That's the only example we have of legislative outcomes being affected primarily by social media. But here are the key elements to successfully using social media to influence legislative outcomes. Number one, members of Congress tend to look most at the comments reacting to something they said. If they are commenting on healthcare, they are very interested in what constituents have to say in reaction to that. In fact, our research shows that a couple of dozen comments that are reacting to a lawmaker's post will get the attention of the lawmaker. They will see it. One of the other things that you recommend is that constituents show up at town hall meetings. Most of the time, they're sparsely attended, and I have read that mostly they're attended by the same people. Uh, how is going to a town hall meeting an effective way to build a relationship with your representative? My first job on Capitol Hill when I was in my 20s was working for a member of Congress as press secretary who lived in the suburban Maryland part of outside of Washington. And I went to 100 town hall meetings over four years. And yeah, we did sort of see the regulars there. But then when new people showed up, it really got the lawmaker's attention. And he was very excited about this. And they extended conversations. What happened at these town hall meetings? Because most of it's like 20 or 30 people. What's terrific is the lawmaker will really use these sessions as an opportunity to learn. Our research shows that citizens want to see town hall meetings as a symbol of transparency and accountability. Lawmakers that do it want to do it. This is where they get their juices from. This is where they get their energy. Sometimes it's where they get their ideas from. It can really have a lot of power because you're right in front of the legislator and they're listening to you. And frankly, as our research shows, there's nothing more powerful than that in-person interaction. Yes, indeed. But what about really big protests like the Women's March? You know, so that's not in a town hall setting and you're not in the face of the representative. Do our elected officials pay attention to that? And in what way? Well, it depends upon the issue. Uh, and w we see these organic grassroots movements happen every few years are kind of like the tsunamis or the, 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 the El Ninos of grassroots movement. We saw it happen in 2011 with healthcare. Um, we saw it happen in 2006 with immigration. But it does depend upon the issue. Uh, I remember a few years ago where I saw some people like lobbying John McCain on the Iraq war in 2003. You know, good luck with that. Um, but if you have, say, an issue that is really close to you where it doesn't involve war and peace or it doesn't involve a reputation or electoral issue, those are the ones where the protest or the big numbers are totally going to get the attention of lawmakers because that's going to surprise them. It only takes about 50 or 100 that they're going to say, whoa, 50 or 100 people care about whether or not optometrists or ophthalmologists are performing certain procedures at VA hospitals or whether or not this is the type of size of your pond in your backyard if you're a farmer. And those types of mini protests, those are the things that really make a difference. Well, so what about email campaigns? How effective are those? The internet changed the economics of advocacy. Our estimate is that the total 
email volume between 2002 and 2010 went up for every congressional office from 200% to 1,000%. What we're seeing is the identical mass email campaigns, the one-click campaigns, are being devalued on Capitol Hill just because there's too much of it. What is increasing in value, therefore, are individualized communications. So let's say you get that email from an environmental group. Instead of just sending that email in its form that hasn't been changed at all, take a minute, if you're a citizen, write a paragraph right at the beginning on what this means to you. The legislative assistant or legislative correspondent, that staff member in the congressional office, will read it. It literally goes into a different pile and is counted differently if you individualize that communication just a little bit, whether it's how many citizens in the community are affected, how many employees you have, how many people in the county do you think have a particular disease or could be affected in the future by that. That's what members of Congress need to know, and that will move the legislative needle. Yeah, it's uh, surprisingly straightforward and logical, everything that you're explaining, but we just don't hear about that, and we don't have an idea that this is possible for us. So how did you get into this, and, and what makes you so passionate? Well, I'm one of those people that, you know, grew up in a little town in rural New York and took an eighth grade school trip you know, eight hours on one of those yellow buses with no seatbelts back in the 70s and got Potomac fever in the eighth grade. I just fell in love with history and government from a young age and got involved in journalism and knew I wanted to be in Washington and got really lucky to get first a job as a TV reporter for a stringer for small stations around the South and then got a job on on Capitol Hill. And I was just fortunate to work with four really terrific members of Congress and then had the opportunity to work at the Congressional Management Foundation. I was one of these people that liked the process of government, wanted to make it better, and just saw the wonderful public servants who are both members and staffers. And we should say a minute about the congressional staff because they are really the the silent patriots who serve under the dome. These are people who are public servants. They're getting paid less than they would get paid in the private sector. And these are really the best and brightest of America. You know, I was a chief of staff for a freshman lawmaker. We had 16 openings and 1,200 applications. And it doesn't always get like that. I'll tell you, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's a bit of a phenom, got over 5,000 applications for her office with 16 openings. So it is the congressional staff that we have the pleasure and honor to serve. It's it's really exciting to work with them because they just really do want to make the world a better place. And they take a lot of grief for their members of Congress, but usually they do it with a degree of a plum and pride. Oh, that's so lovely that you said that, because I think you're right. We don't think about them as patriots, uh, and the government in general is vilified so commonly, daily, frankly, bashed in the media, that we forget that these people really take public service seriously. So in order to restore trust in our democratic process, You think that more citizen engagement is going to help us get there. What are the other missed opportunities that are not obvious to people on the outside? Well, I think, frankly, to turn the tables, I think also the responsibility relies with Congress as well. I think they have to do a better job in engaging citizens. And we've done some experiments working with some academics uh, at a couple of universities around the country at online town hall meetings. And we did 
13 members of Congress, but we did them a little differently than the way members do them now. First of all, they were moderated. So the citizens felt they had a, a spokesman in the room. Second, the citizens were provided some information in advance that was nonpartisan in nature. The Congressional Management Foundation basically worked with policy experts and came up with a two-page around the topic of the town hall meeting, which was immigration, not exactly a softball topic. And the third thing we did differently was it was on immigration. It was on one topic. And we have found that members that focus on single topics have a better experience themselves and the citizens have a better experience themselves. The members of Congress in the last few years that have done uh, telephone town hall meetings on the opioid crisis have gotten phenomenally positive feedback from citizens because they're addressing an immediate crisis in the community. They're opening themselves up to answer difficult questions and they're being responsive to our citizens, which is exactly what you want your elected official to do. Right. Well, I think CMF is doing a great job to facilitate this kind of conversation with the public between the constituent and the public official. So looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? One of the things that gets me optimistic is that there is a group of nonprofits out there that are being organized by a couple of foundations and another nonprofit that is really doing what they can to improve democracy. It might be to try to look at electoral reform or get a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. Or there's even a Republican-oriented group on campaign finance reform or get young people involved. When I started work at the Congressional Management Foundation in 2001 and you asked me, well, how many groups are interested in congressional reform? Form, my reply was, well, you probably couldn't put together a poker game. We can field a softball league right now. There are more groups out there that are trying. They're not big and they don't get a lot of headlines because they're trying to fix the system. And frankly, that's just not news. So it gives me optimism when I look to some of my cousins and brothers and sisters in the democracy and congressional reform community. I have hope. On the congressional side, most people haven't heard about this, but one of the things that was established in the new Congress was a select committee on the modernization of Congress. Select committees are temporary committees that look at specific problems. And the one common theme that they wanted the committee to work on was better citizen engagement, creating a better experience for citizens interacting with the Congress. Amazing. That's terrific. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is one of the most hopeful conversations I've had since we launched a podcast. It's changed the way that I think about our elected officials. First of all, they read our letters, they take meetings with their constituents, and they are also mostly decent people who are committed to serving the public. I love that citizen advocacy is pretty straightforward. All we need to do is tell our story and how it's affected by legislation. I'm excited that advocacy is up and that organizations like the Congressional Management Foundation exist and share their amazing tools for effective advocacy for free. Most importantly, Congress itself is taking this issue seriously and has formed a select committee to improve citizen engagement. I feel super encouraged and I hope that you do too. How can a grassroots movement work in a way to bring about legislative action? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Mari Urbina. She's the National Political Director of Indivisible, an organization that cultivates a grassroots movement of thousands of local indivisible groups to elect progressive leaders, realize bold progressive policies, and rebuild our democracy. It's really important that lawmakers, either when they go home for their home district periods or when they turn on their televisions or their radios or they read the paper, that they are seeing clearly what constituents are demanding of them, what constituents expect from them. 
Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.